The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusts in thee. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's our custom before we begin our study of God's Word to make sure that we are in fellowship, that we are filled with the Spirit. We do that through the use of 1 John 1, 9, if necessary. If we confess, which means to admit, acknowledge our sins in privacy to God the Father, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we take a few moments for silent prayer before we begin to make sure that we keep short accounts with the Lord with regard to any sin in our life so we're prepared for study of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have today to gather together as a body of believers to fellowship around the teaching of your word, for we are impressed with the absolute truth in your word that it clarifies all the issues of life for us, it stabilizes our thinking, stabilizes our emotions, and it gives us the information we need to live a life that glorifies you. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that you'd help us to understand these things to see how they apply to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Galatians chapter 5, verse 20. We'll probably go back to about verse 17 or 18 to pick up the context, but we're down to about verse 20. Galatians chapter 5, we are down to verse 20. Now, every now and then I get something amusing across my desk, and I think we all enjoy a few lawyer jokes every now and then. We all say something pretty stupid every now and then. These are some excerpts from a book called Disorder in the Court. I've seen this once or twice. It's rather amusing. These are things that have actually been said in the cross-examination of a witness, the interchange between a lawyer and a witness on the stand. Question, how old is your son, the one living with you? Answer, 38 or 35, I can't remember which. Question, how long has he lived with you? Answer, 45 years. 
Question, what was the first thing your husband said to you when he woke that morning? He said, where am I, Kathy? And why did that upset you? Uh, My name is Susan. (laughs) And where was the location of the accident? Uh, Approximately milepost 499. And where is milepost 499? Well, probably between 498 and 500. (laughs) Question, did you blow your horn or anything? Answer, after the accident? Question, before the accident? Answer, sure, I played for 10 years, even went to school for it. And some questions are just self-evidently wrong, inappropriate, or confusing. The youngest son, the 20-year-old, how old is he? Some of you, it's a little early. Question, were you present when your picture was taken? Question, how was your first marriage terminated? Answer, by death. Question, and by whose death was it terminated? (laughs) Question, is your appearance here this morning pursuant to a deposition, to a deposition notice which I sent to your attorney? No, this is how I dress when I go to work. (laughs) Question, doctor, how many autopsies have you performed on dead people? Answer, all my autopsies are performed on dead people. (laughs) Question, do you recall the time you examined the body? Well, the autopsy started around 8.30 p.m., and Mr. Dennington was dead at the time. No, he was sitting on the table wondering why I was doing an autopsy. (laughs) Question, doctor, before you performed the autopsy, did you check for a pulse? Answer, no. Did you check for blood pressure? No. Did you check for breathing? No. Question, so then... It is possible that the patient was alive when you began the autopsy. No. How can you be so sure, doctor? Answer, because his brain was sitting on my desk in a jar. (laughs) Question, but could the patient have still been alive nevertheless? Answer, yes, it is possible. He could have been alive and practicing law somewhere. (laughs) I wish I had been in the courtroom for that last one. (laughs) Galatians 5.16 down through 26 outlines for us the issues in the spiritual life. This is one of the crucial passages for us to understand if we are going to go anywhere in our spiritual life. The sad thing is that too many people don't realize that they are to go somewhere in their spiritual life. They think the end result is getting saved, that is, entrance into heaven, And they don't give any thought to the fact that that is the beginning of a new life and it is not the end of a course of action. The issues in this chapter deal with what is involved in advancing from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. You see, the issue is very clear for salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. At the cross, God the Father imputed all of the sins of human history on to Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 says that he who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be found that the righteousness of God might be found in us. So all the sins of human history, past, present, and future, all your sins, the sins you don't know about, the sins that you're going to commit that are going to shock you and your friends and neighbors and family, 
Every single sin in human history has already been paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. When a person exercises positive volition at gospel hearing, which means that they respond by faith alone in Christ alone, the Scripture makes it, states it very succinctly, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. When a person hears that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for their sins, that they don't do anything, all they simply do is accept it as a free gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So with the free gift of salvation, when they respond by faith alone, not faith plus works, not faith plus joining a church, not faith plus moral reformation of the life, but simply believing in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, at that moment, God does 39 irrevocable things in your life. You are regenerated. That means that God, you are born again. God grants, he creates and imputes to you at that moment a human spirit. He also imputes to that human spirit eternal life. So you have, as part of regeneration, a new spiritual life. And just as in physical life, you begin as a spiritual infant. But it is your responsibility now to grow, to advance. And the major issue that must be answered, let's outline about three questions here. Question number one is how... Does a believer grow? How do you advance? What are the mechanics? That doesn't mean it's a mechanical process. That just means, as in anything in life, whether you're studying dance or music or athletics, there are basic steps, basic mechanics involved. How do you go from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity? What's involved in that process? Secondly, we have seen that this is a a life that is uniquely based on God the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, I say, walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not carry out, you will not, it will be impossible for you to fulfill the lust of the flesh. So we see that this spiritual life that we have is uniquely empowered by God the Holy Spirit. That means it is different from a life of simple morality. Morality is for every member of the human race, believer and unbeliever alike. Any unbeliever can live a moral life. They can follow, to a certain degree, a, a, a decent code of ethics, and they can have a level of integrity in their life. But it is not the result of the work of God the Holy Spirit. So since the new life that we have in Christ is a supernatural life. This supernatural life demands a supernatural method, a supernatural means, and that is through God the Holy Spirit. So we have to ask a further question, how do we distinguish between a life that we're living just on the basis of our own ability, our own energy, just like the unbeliever living a moral life, and a life that is produced by God the Holy Spirit. That is the most important question you can ask yourself. 
How do I know if I'm doing this in the power and energy of God the Holy Spirit or the power and energy of the flesh? There's a warfare going on, we saw in verse 17, between the flesh, which is the term that, a technical term the Apostle Paul uses for the sin nature, that the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So there is warfare between the sin nature and the Holy Spirit. And the issue is going to be decided by your volition. Whether you decide to live your life by walking step by step in dependence upon God the Holy Spirit or whether you are going to do it in your own power and your own energy. Verse 17 reads, The flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. And we looked at that in detail last Sunday morning, and we compared it to passages in Romans chapter 7. Romans 7 describes the life of the Apostle Paul between his salvation and the time that he came to understand the dynamics for the spiritual life in the church age. During that time, he was still operating on the modus operandi of the old dispensation. He was trying to fulfill the law. So an emphasis was on his own morality as defined through the Mosaic Law. But the Mosaic Law was never designed as a means of salvation. It was designed to demonstrate that man could not fulfill God's righteous requirement. And the more we saw that Paul tried to emphasize his own morality and live that good life in Romans 7, he makes this same statement that he could not do the things he wanted to do, and he did the the very things he did not wish to do. And the result was... Sin. So when he set out to live by the moral life, he ends up producing sin in his life. Now we come to Galatians 5.18. If, and the assumption is that you are as a believer following the Holy Spirit. We saw that there is a dynamic here. Three different terms used between 16 and 25. Walking step by step by the Spirit. Verse 18 following the Holy Spirit, that's what it means if you are led, that is, if you are following the Holy Spirit, you are not under law. So again, there's a contrast between the life today, the life today and the spiritual life in the church age is on the basis of the Holy Spirit, not on the basis of flesh, not on the basis of law. So Paul is tying the obedience to the law together with walking by means of the flesh. I want you to see this. The average person out there, the average Christian, does not realize that they can live a moral life and it's the production of their sin nature. That is a profound concept. And as we have gone through the last year in this study of Galatians, we have seen constantly that Paul shifts back and forth in his terminology between two states. One state is that that is related to the Spirit, related to grace. The other is related to the flesh and to the law. And these are contrasted to one another, so they're absolute conditions. 
That means it's one or the other, it's not both and. You're either operating on principles of grace, living in dependence of God the Holy Spirit, operating through faith, dependence upon the Lord, or you're operating on flesh, flesh on the, according to the flesh, on the basis of morality. The conclusion is that morality, therefore, is not the spiritual life. The spiritual life goes far beyond morality. Now, don't make a mistake. I'm not saying that immorality is okay. That's not the point. The point is that the spiritual life of the church age is far higher. It's a far higher life than that of mere human morality because it is energized by God the Holy Spirit. Now, in order to help us do a little self-evaluation, we get a grocery list of characteristics that are produced when you are walking by the sin nature. Verse 19, Now the deeds of the flesh are made clear, made manifest. The first three that are listed there in verse 19 relate to sexual sin. The key issue in Scripture, I'm going to change this. I'm not going to change that. I don't have a roller out of, out of uh, overhead here. So we have just enough to maybe write a little more. Okay. Sin nature starts off, first three groupings has to do with sexual sin. God designed sexuality to be enjoyed by mankind, a source of pleasure, source of recreation, and secondarily, procreation. Its primary purpose was a celebration of love between the man and the woman, and it was designed to be in the context of of marriage. At no time should you get involved in sex outside of marriage. That is the path to self-destruction. It will destroy your capacity for love. Love is by its very essence something that is non-selfish. Sex outside of marriage is self-centered. It is always focused on self-gratification, the lack of patience, the lack of ability to uh, put off gratification until the right time. So that you see here this uh, initial linkage of three different words in the Greek related to sexual sin, and it covers the entire gambit of sexual sin from mere immorality, fornication, that is sex between two people who are not married, to adultery, which is sex between two people, one of whom at least is married to someone else. Impurity, which is the term uh, akathosia, which in the Greek relates to the whole realm of perverse sins from homosexuality, whether between men or women. Homosexuality is forbidden in Scripture. Homosexuality, bestiality, uh, pederasty, the whole realm of perverted sins is covered by the term akathosia and the last synonym there, sensuality, which is the term asogeia. 
Now, the sad thing today is that because of the influence of our culture, that all moral values are somewhat relative, that has seeped into the church. And so many believers no longer think that that a little sex outside of marriage is necessarily wrong. I remember when I was in Dallas about ten years ago, there was a pastor of one of the largest churches in the area. I won't mention the, uh, the, the brand of the church. But it was one of the largest churches, had uh, one of the great, highest levels of exposure in the community. And it was discovered that the pastor was having, or had had not just one uh, affair with, different, with one lady in the congregation, but there were several that had been involved, and they began to start coming out of the woodwork. And this made, of course, the local news and, and was a very sad time. It was also about the same time that several things were going on nationally related to some uh, nationally known evangelists. So it was a time of, of a lot of negative publicity for Christianity. But uh, the, I remember the reporter from the local news station was interviewing members of the church and went up to one lady and said, well, what do you think about this? She said, well, I don't know why everybody's so upset. Everybody in the church is doing it. Why can't he? So that just shows how our thinking has deteriorated over the last two or three decades. We no longer want to call sin, sin. Everybody's doing it, so it must not be too bad. So these first three... Immorality, which involves uh, fornication and adultery, impurity, all kinds of sexual sin, and also gale, which relates to licentious debauchery and anything not covered by the first three, pretty much excludes any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. We see here a diagram of the sin nature. The sin nature is motivated by various lust patterns. Approbation lust, power lust, sex lust, money lust, materialism lust, chemical lust, alcohol lust, all kinds of lust patterns here, and you trend in one of two directions, either towards antinomianism and licentiousness or lasciviousness or towards asceticism and legalism. Now, these first three focus on the person who's motivated by sexual lust and is trended towards antinomianism and lasciviousness. Now, the next two relate to someone who's probably motivated to some degree by power lust or perhaps approbation lust or something related to religious activity. This person would tend to be motivated to or trend towards asceticism or legalism. You have two words mentioned, idolatry and sorcery. Now, idolatry here would include all forms of overt idolatry. This is the usually pictured as the worship of some image, some physical image that is, uh, that, to which is attributed various uh, attributes of deity. But idolatry is not restricted to the worship of some sort of physical object. It can also involve the worship of something that is abstract. For example, in Colossians 3.5 we read, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to, and here we have two familiar words, immorality and impurity. That's uh, osogeia and porneia. Passion, evil desire, and greed. 
And then you have an appositional clause to say something a little more about greed, which is materialism, lust, or money lust. Greed, which amounts to idolatry. Idolatry is looking to anything other than God as the source of meaning, purpose in life, and happiness. It's looking to something other than God for meaning, purpose, value, and happiness as the solution to life's problems. That's a very simple definition of idolatry and goes far more, goes far beyond simply the worship of some physical object. The second category here is translated sorcery, but it comes from a Greek word, pharmakeia. Looks like this in the Greek. P-H-A-R-M-E-K-E-I-A. That's the Greek word from which we get our English word pharmacy. It has to do with the use of hallucinogenic drugs for the purpose of reaching a certain kind of consciousness, which is usually called an altered state of consciousness, so that you could contact the various gods, which we would call demons, in order to have certain powers. So here it relates to drug use, not the legitimate use of drugs for curing disease, but for the illegitimate use in order to achieve happiness or power or something along that lines. And it was often associated with religious rites and witchcrafts, and that's why it's translated sorcery, but it could just as easily be translated drug use, uh, religious drug use. And what's interesting is to read various accounts from people back in the uh, 60s and 70s, there's a... uh, uh, you found a lot of people who were getting turned on to uh, LSD and various other hallucinogenic drugs, and they would have religious experiences while they were on these various drugs. And then that led them to seek further and further emotional highs as a result of that drug experience, and they found them through various religious experiences. There's a book that came out about 15 years ago by Dave Hunt called The Cult Explosion, and he has some fascinating data in there on the relationship between drug use and uh, religious activity. There's one quote that stands out in my mind, testimonial from one individual, who stated that after years of of using hallucinogenic drugs, they discovered... uh, Eastern meditation and the highs that they reached through Eastern meditation were identical to what they were doing with hallucinogenic drugs and now they could do it without the drugs. So you see there is a connection between whether people want to believe it or not, there is a a connection between hallucinogenic drugs and religious activity. Just because that's not your motivation or that's not something you're looking for does not mean that that's not something you might pick up with the package, including perhaps contact with demons and opening the door to a whole lot of demonic activity that you don't really want to have in your life. So that's all included within the concept of sorcery. And then following that, we have a series of activities both mental and overt, which relate to 
the consequences of sin on human relationships and how personal sin is devastating and destructive to human relationships. The first one is enmities. This is the Greek word ekthra, which relates to hostile, the development of hostile feelings, animosity, hostile behavior, a sharpness or bitterness in expression or manner. It includes both mental attitudes of rancor, anger, bitterness, and overt activities of contentiousness. Enmities, the anger and hostility between people. The second term, translated strife, is the Greek word eris. Eris means strife or discord between people. It means to be quarrelsome or argumentative. Someone who is always in a bad mood, picking a fight. Someone who's always arguing over something simply for the sake of argument. Not in the sense of a positive argument. Sometimes, sometimes people are that way and they just want to discuss things. But this is somebody who's constantly seeking a fight. It's a very negative, argumentative, hostile attitude. Someone who is continually stirring up trouble. The third sin in terms of social relationships is zealous. Now, zealous is jealousy, and that will be distinguished from envy when we get there. Jealousy is the result of self-absorption. We have been studying and seeing the effects of arrogance on Wednesday night in our study of James, that there are four skills involved in arrogance. It starts with self-absorption. A focus on oneself, and this is a mental attitude here. Self-absorption is an orientation of your thinking to self. It's a subjectiveness. It means that whenever anything happens in life, you immediately start thinking of it in terms of your own experience, your own background, and how it impacts you. It's uh, tremendously subjective. When you have a self-absorbed mental attitude, this results then in self indulgence. You begin to give in to whatever it is that you want, whatever your desires are. You give in, you indulge the the lusts of your sin nature. Self-absorption leads to self-indulgence, which in turn leads to self-justification. Now you have to justify why you're involved in this. As soon as somebody questions it, you justify it, why this is really a good Activity, And then for this leads then, because to justify you have to start shifting your perception of reality, this leads to self-deception. You begin to lie to yourself about the way things really are. That in turn leads to even greater self-absorption. And that leads to more, more self-indulgence, self-justification, and self-deception. You get involved in a very destructive cycle of arrogance. Now, jealousy is what is produced from this arrogance cycle. It's a result of self-absorption and self-indulgence. It's produced by an excessive focus on personal ambition and desires that is thwarted or perceived to be thwarted by others. You see that others are getting what you think you deserve, and so you want what they have. James 3.14 states, If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, 
Do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. 1 Corinthians 3.3, this is, uh, jealousy is a particular example of carnality. Carnality is also fleshliness when the believer is operating on the sin nature. Paul tells the Corinthians, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? Not walking like Christians in the power of the Holy Spirit, but walking like unbelievers in the power of the flesh. So jealousy and strife are related to the, the sin nature control of the soul. Jealousy focuses on what somebody else has and the fact that you don't have it and you want it and think you deserve it. Now, that's going to differ from envy. Envy seeks to destroy someone else who has what you think you deserve. That's the difference. Jealousy is you want what they have. Envy, you want to destroy what, you don't, what they have because you don't have it. So we've looked at enmity, strife, jealousy, and now outbursts of anger. The Greek word is thumos, which refers to anger, wrath, rage, Passionate anger, losing your temper. Ephesians 4.31 states, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, that includes both categories of, of anger, wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Colossians 3.8, But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. The believer who is walking by means of God the Holy Spirit will not be given to outbursts of anger. Disputes. This is the Greek word, erytheia. means selfish ambition. Disputation from selfish ambition. Self-centered advancement at whatever the cost. And then we have the next word is the Greek word, dikastasiai. Dikastasiai. It means divisions, dissensions, and discord. So we have three words here that talk about the breakdown of relationships. Disputes, which is really the word erythei, selfish ambition, the same word we find over there in James chapter 3. Erythei, it's Prohibited in Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than yourself. So the word that is translated disputes is really a bad translation. It should be translated selfish ambition, and it is just the opposite of genuine humility and teachability. Somebody who is self-centered and always putting forth their views and arguing with other people is part of it. Dissensions is the division that is the result of that. This word is used in Romans 16:17. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. So when somebody is operating on the sin nature and they are creating division, then it is the responsibility of believers to disassociate with them. Now, that is a personal thing there. That is not some activity from the, from the church. But if somebody's involved in that, that's a direct mandate 
to the individual believer to stay away from people like that because you'll get caught up in their divisiveness as well as in any discipline coming their way. And then the next word we have is translated factions, but it means heresies. It is the Greek word heresies. looks like this. It's a rough breathing mark. H-A-I-R-E-S-E-I-S. It's the word from which we get our English word heresies. It means sex, not S-E-X, sects, S-E-C-T-S, divisions, divisiveness. And this is what happens when people get caught up in following the lust of the flesh. Sin nature is in control of the soul. They start interpreting the Word of God through their own subjective, arrogant grid instead of by the accepted canons of interpretation handed down through the centuries. And they get involved in different views and then they start arguing over their views and that just creates division in the church. So we have heresies. And then the last in the list is Thanoi. Looks like this. P-H- T-H-O-N-O-I. Phthanoi. Phthanos is the singular. It it emphasizes the result of self-absorption and frustration. It's an emotional sin in reaction to the prosperity and blessing of others. Envy seeks to destroy what others have, and jealousy seeks to have what others enjoy. Envy seeks to destroy what other people have, and jealousy seeks to have what others enjoy. Enjoy. And then the last two relate to extreme partying. Now, this is not having a good time, a good social occasion. It's not sitting around having a bowl of punch or uh, having a glass of punch with, laced with a little alcohol. This is talking about the kinds of drunken revelries that were so typical in Greek culture. Now, many times these were associated with what was going on in terms of the idolatrous worship. They would go up into the high places up in the hills where they had various uh, worship sites related to the uh, fertility cult and the phallic cult, and there they would engage in drunkenness because they were worshiping Dionysius, also known as Bacchus, who was the god of wine. And, of course, if Bacchus is the god of wine, then the best way to, to have a relationship with him is to enjoy what he makes. So everyone would sit around and drink all the wine they could. And then they, when they got really drunk, where they were just on the verge of passing out, then they hoped that the God would come and take possession of them and speak through them. And they would speak in tongues at that time, in unintelligible gibberish. And that also is the background for much of the confusion in Corinth, where, where you had that practice going on, as well as in Ephesus. Both had major centers of Dionysian worship, and this was the background. So when Paul includes drunkenness and carousing here, he is not just talking about the fact that it's a sin to be drunk. It's not a sin to drink alcoholic beverage. Jesus turned the water into wine. It's interesting how little study is done on this. You always have certain kinds of knee-jerk reactions among fundamentalists related to the use of alcoholic beverages. 
and there's a lot of non sequiturs. In fact, it was interesting. I ran across an article the other day in a scholarly theological journal entitled, Should Christians Drink Alcoholic Beverages? And there was a lot of good information in it and a lot of uh, interesting and correct information in it. And the, guy, the, the man who wrote it is also known as a Christian philosopher and has written a couple of textbooks on logic. But then he jumps to this non sequitur at the end after laying out all this evidence that the Scripture doesn't condemn drinking. Jesus turned the water into wine and all these other things. But because alcohol creates so many problems for some people, you shouldn't do it at all. I mean, it's a total non sequitur. That is an individual decision whether or not you want to have a glass of wine with a meal or enjoy a good beer or whether you want to enjoy a good scotch. Now, one of the things in his article, and I've seen this from other people, they say they make the analogy that uh, uh, the Bible in the Old Testament warns about the dangers of strong drink, and they immediately want to interpret that strong drink as hard liquor as opposed to beer or wine. The trouble is there was no known distillation of spirits, Nobody had any scotch or vodka or bourbon back in the Old Testament when they were using that term for uh, that's translated strong drink. What you do find is that in other cognate languages, that's languages that are similar to Hebrew, where you find that word, it always refers to a beverage that was made with barley and hops. Now, immediately some of you realize what we're talking about here. That was beer. So you have wine and beer mentioned in the Old Testament. And I always facetiously say that when Jesus provided something for, for the people at the wedding, he gave them wine. But in the Old Testament, when God wanted an, an offering, he had beer. So God must prefer beer to wine. I'm just being facetious, folks. But that's what we have in the Old Testament, and that is not to be extrapolated into any sort of conclusion that you should not have drink scotch or any other form of hard liquor. The thing is, in most mixed drinks, the alcoholic content after you have a scotch in water or after you have a bourbon and Coke or something like that is much less than a beer. So unless you're drinking scotch neat, uh, in which case you're probably not or you shouldn't be chugging it anyway, uh, it's not really a problem. You shouldn't be going out and doing shooters anyway. You're just going to kill too many brain cells and you won't be able to uh, learn enough doctrine. So uh, you'll probably end up in drunkenness and carousing, which is clearly forbidden. But the context here, translating these two words, methoi for drunkenness and komoi, which means a drunken revelry or a drinking bout, this is all involved in partying with the intent of becoming inebriated and removing all inhibitions. So all of this defines and describes the works of the sin nature. Now, just so you think that your favorite sin wasn't mentioned and you're going to get off scot-free, Paul includes the phrase, and things like this. In the Greek, we find the phrase, the use of the word homoia, which means, which is similar to the, the noun uh, homos, where we get the word similar, like, like homosexual, the same kind of thing. Homoia means 
of the same nature, similar, like, resembling, something belonging to the same class. Excuse me. So we have here at the end of the list, and things belonging to the same class. So this is just a representative list of the works of the sin nature. It is not an exclusive list. It is not listing everything. Now, Paul says here at the end, he says, And things like this, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this is a very important phrase here for us to stop and understand. What does it mean, those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, the phrase translated, those who practice, is the present active participle of the Greek verb proso, which means to practice, to continually carry out, to continually do something. It means to have something which characterizes your lifestyle. Those who continually practice those things, it has a definite article and should be translated as a, uh, as a substantival phrase here, those who practice such things. And then we come to the word, the phrase at question, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So we have to start asking some questions here to see if we can properly interpret the passage. The first question we have to ask is, what does it mean to inherit the kingdom? Now the important thing that we must recognize is that inherit the kingdom refers to something different than simply inheritance. So we always have this modifier here, this genitive of content, or excuse me, this would be a descriptive genitive here, which modifies the the verb inherit. We're inheriting the kingdom of God. So there would be a difference between inheritance generally and inheriting the kingdom of God. It's always, when I think about this, the importance of little observations like that are so important. I am reminded of uh, was reminded this last week when uh, we were in Boston. I saw a building down on Newbury Street that was dedicated to uh, Professor Agassiz, who was a very well-known uh, professor, head of the sciences at Harvard about a hundred years ago. And uh, uh, I remember Prop Hendricks, when I was a student in Dallas Seminary, used to give an example of the importance of observation in Bible study. First class, every seminary student had to take when they started first year at Dallas was Bible study methods with Hendricks. And the first thing he started off with was observation. And he would describe how Agassiz would come into class, to his science classroom, and teach his students about observation. He had on his laboratory desk down the front of the amphitheater a, a, a vial of liquid. And he would take that vial or beaker and he would, he would look at it and he would hold it up to the light and he would examine the color. He would smell it. And then he would take his finger, dip it in there, and taste it. And he said, now, he prefaced that by telling everybody that he wanted them to observe exactly what he did because they would all have to do the same things. And then he would pass the beaker around through the classroom, and everyone would do that. It would come to them, and they would look at it. They would smell it and just kind of grimace a little bit, and then they would 
would steal themselves and they would dip their finger into it and taste it and make a face and then pass it on to the next person. And this went through the entire class. And when it came through, he said, now, when it came back to him, he said, now I want to teach you the importance of observation. When I dipped my finger into it, I put my middle finger into the liquid and tasted my forefinger. I do not care to taste urine. So that was a lesson those Harvard students never forgot. (laughs) And you will never forget. It's important to observe the little details. And this is why people get involved in heresy and they uh, distort Scripture is because they don't notice the little things. So we're not talking about inheritance in general here. We're talking specifically about inheriting the kingdom. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom. Now, there are two options that are usually given for interpreting this phrase. One is that it is synonymous with entering heaven or gaining eternal life. That's the first way most people want to take this. That would then mean that if you practice any of these things, you're not going to get into heaven. The second interpretation is that it refers to special blessings and rewards in heaven to believers who advance to spiritual maturity. Now, the problem with the first view is if this means entering heaven or gaining eternal life, then it is basing salvation upon works or upon moral reformation of the life. And that is in direct contradiction to passages like Titus 3.5, which says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. Ephesians 2.8-9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should, should boast. Now, if you practice these things, you shall not inherit the kingdom. So inheriting the kingdom, if it means salvation, you've got some problems. Now, one passage that we can look at here, and I don't want to go into a lot of detail, but I just want to skim it, is over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Now, in a couple of months, I'm going to be out of town on a Sunday. On that particular Sunday, we're going to have a, a guest preacher named Dan Ingram. Now, we've all got, Dan's going to be up here, I hope, in a couple of weeks, so you can all meet him. But Dan is now in his second year of seminary. He just retired, or he's just in the process of retiring from the United States Marine Corps. And he is going to be uh, stepping out in the direction of a new, new life's direction. Now, when you're a seminary student in your second year, you just don't have a lot of stuff you've got under your belt yet. And I uh, kind of mentored him through a position paper on the whole issue of inheritance in this passage last spring. So he is going to be teaching on this passage in about a month or two. So I don't want to take away from his thunder too much because uh, he doesn't have a whole lot of other passages he can teach on at this point. But let's look at verse 9, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be, and then we have that same phrase again, inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters. Notice the similarity in language between this text and what we've just seen. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers nor effeminate nor homosexuals nor thieves nor covetous nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now the question, and I thought Dan came up with this last year, I thought this was just a brilliant observation. It says if inherit the kingdom of God means to be saved, then what this passage is saying is that thieves can't be saved. Murderers can't be saved. Well, why have a jail ministry? They can't be saved by definition. Furthermore, if this means entering into heaven or not being saved, then the thief on the cross couldn't have been saved. Because when the thief on the cross recognized who Jesus was, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. So if inheriting the kingdom of God means to go into heaven, then you've got some real problems. Because you have to be morally pure before you can be saved. And that violates the principle of salvation by grace. Now that's all I'm going to say about 1 Corinthians 6. Let's turn over to another passage in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. Well, let's look at the context here. We've already been to Ephesians 5 a couple of times in this study when we talked about walking in the light and the importance of the Christian walk. Just a reminder, in verse 8, we saw that you were formerly darkness, that is your position before salvation. You were in the kingdom of darkness, the domain of darkness. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. This means that once you're saved, you are in the top circle. You are in, in a permanent relationship with the Lord in terms of your realities in Christ. But that doesn't match with your experience. Paul says, now you are light. Walk as children of light. That means that even though you are light and you're in the kingdom of His beloved Son, you're in the kingdom of light, that you can walk in darkness. You can still commit acts of sin. You still have a sin nature. Now let's go back to verse 3. Verse 3, we have the mandate here to avoid carnality and extremes of carnality. Do not let immorality, that's porneia, or any impurity which is asogeia, or akatharsia rather, or greed even be named among you. Now remember, this is the same word that's used in Colossians 3.5, greed, which is tantamount to idolatry. So we see the similarities here. Don't let any of these things be named among you as is proper among saints. In other words, this shouldn't characterize your lifestyle. There must be no filthiness and silly talk. Now what this is... That's that's a very superficial translation because the words in the Greek indicate extreme, perverse language. Telling jokes, telling stories that are just as gross and immoral as they can be. This is not just telling 
an off-color joke, folks. This is somebody who's just living a life and talking um, with the most perverse sexual language possible. Coarse jesting. All of this is involved in that, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Okay, so here in verse 3 and 4, you have a negative prohibition towards those who are involved in extreme immorality, sexual perversion, and talking about it. Contrast. For this you know, in verse 5, for this you know with certainty. That's a very strong idiom in the Greek. It means knowing this you know. It's a present participle of gnosko involved with a perfect perfect active imperative of oida. Both words for knowledge are used, emphasizing the fact that Paul has taught them this already. That no immoral, pornos, or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater, notice how that ties right back to the mandate of verse 3, immorality, impurity, and greed, no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So it is clear that if you live a certain kind of lifestyle under the control of the sin nature, that you are going to be forfeiting inheritance. But what kind of inheritance? Inheritance in the kingdom. Now, a second problem comes up as we look at the whole passage, and that is in how you define the meaning of proso, which means to practice, back in Galatians 5.20. Does this mean to do something a few times? Does it mean to practice this activity after salvation for some time, but then later in life you don't do this anymore? For example, let's say you're saved and you continue to be involved in uh, sexual immorality and sexual perversion for the next 20 years, and then you finally stop. Of course, you've gotten older now, so maybe your lust pattern has shifted a little bit or your physical abilities have shifted a little bit. Hormones aren't raging quite as much, but you quit doing it. Does that mean that uh, you still forfeit the inheritance? Or does this mean to continually do this activity from the time of your salvation all the way to death? And I think what Paul is saying here is that this involves something that characterizes the person's lifestyle. And eventually, of course, you can reach a point in spiritual maturity where you stop doing these things. You know, legalism says you just automatically stop doing these things once you're saved. That is on a very overt approach to the spiritual life. You should stop doing those things. I'm not giving uh, some sort of license here, an excuse to continue doing it. But the issue, the way things are presented in Scripture, is as you grow and mature as a believer, you will, uh, the Holy Spirit will at some point eventually deal with these sins in your life, and you will move beyond that. You may pick up some new sins that you have to start dealing with, but uh, you will move past those as you mature in the Lord, and it takes time. The trouble with superficial legalism is they expect everything to happen overnight, which is not realistic, nor is it honest with Scripture. Everybody grows at a different rate. Everybody has different trends, different lust patterns, and for you to impose your experience on somebody else is the height of arrogance and self-righteousness. 
Some people may have tremendous problems and backgrounds and habits that may take them years to deal with, but God the Holy Spirit will eventually deal with that if they continue to apply doctrine. Some people, it's it's a very slow growth. Other people, it's very quick. And just because yours may have been easy doesn't mean it's going to be that way for everybody else. So it takes time to see the results of spiritual growth. Now, the other thing that we need to deal with in interpreting this passage is that there are three basic views that are given of this. There's the Arminian view, which says that if you trust Christ as Savior, but fail to give up these activities, then you lose your salvation. They take inheriting the kingdom as being salvation. And that if you you are a believer, but continue in these activities, then you lose salvation. There's the Lordship view, the Lordship view of salvation, the extreme Calvinist view, which says that if you have faith in Christ, but continue to do these things, then that faith that you had in Christ is not a saving faith. It wasn't a genuine faith. You might have thought, you might have believed, you might have uh, believed with your whole being at a point in time that Jesus died for your sins, but the only way you know if it was a genuine faith is by whether or not you quit doing these things. That is, just in my view, just a finesse of the Arminian view because it buys into the concept that there are two different kinds of faith and the only way you know you're saved is not by the promise of Scripture but by the works in your life. And that's wrong. The grace position says that the issue here, as I've demonstrated, is not gaining eternal life. The issue is your eternal destiny or eternal rewards, your position in the kingdom. When we come back with the Lord, after the, at the end of the church age is the rapture. Every believer in the church age is absent from the body face to face with the Lord. If you die before that point in time, then you're immediately face to face with the Lord. Those who are alive at the time of the rapture, the Scripture says, that those who first the dead in Christ will rise and then those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with Him in the clouds. Then the tribulation begins sometime after that and lasts for seven years. During the tribulation, the whole bride of Christ is in heaven, and during that time we are rewarded, or we lose rewards, depending upon our advancement in the spiritual life during this age. And that's what this is talking about. If you have failed to advance in the spiritual life, if you have failed to deal with the sin nature through the principles of doctrine, then you will forfeit rewards and you will forfeit your position to rule and reign with Christ in the kingdom. You will be in the kingdom, but you will not be a possessor of the kingdom. Now, that's a very important topic to look at, and we do not have time to finish that this morning. So we'll go ahead and stop here and come back and finish our look at inheritance in the kingdom of God next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to study Your Word this morning. We thank You for the fact that salvation is based upon grace. It's based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ who paid the penalty in full for our salvation. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their eternal destiny, uncertain of their salvation, that they would realize now that that the Scriptures describe for us the most incredible gift of all time. And that is the free gift of eternal salvation because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. And the only thing that is required, the only condition, is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved.
So, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here without salvation, that right now they would take the opportunity to put their trust alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray that you'd help us remember these things and that we would be encouraged and challenged by them. In Jesus' name, amen.